like lessons in how to fight at some friends' houses um, in my neighborhood, the Christophers. They had like five boys, the youngest of which was a year older than me. And we used to go over there, and their parents had bought them um, like boxing gloves and wrist wraps and things. And so we would like box in the backyard. And, uh, and there was a kid in our neighborhood that wasn't there for very long. I think he just stayed with his grandparents in the summer, so he was really on there in the summer. His name was Andre, and Andre was a trash talker. Like, he, he used to, you know, dance around and, ooh, here I come, here I come, why, you know, just talk a bunch of trash. And we were over at the Christopher's one day, and everybody was boxing, and I'd, I'd never tried it. I just watched everybody else, and, and, uh, and Andre had, had wailed on about three kids in a row. And, uh, and he, uh, and it was just, it was starting to get to me because he was like, he wouldn't just like wail on him. He would talk trash while he was doing it. And that always bugged me. Like you don't have to rub it in. And, uh, and so finally I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. What's the worst thing that can happen? Like uh, bloody nose or something. So I put on these gloves and I'd watched him fight like three people in a row and he had some pretty obvious moves. And so I kind of timed him and, and I didn't really think through it fully. And I have, I've, I've actually had this problem three or four times. Um, when I've been fighting, like for fun, we we had a like a a, a bit of a fight club. Um, we've actually had a couple. It's kind of weird. Long story, but um, but I had a fr- I had a friend. We were doing no headshots. We were we were doing this thing where we call we call it Iron Man, where one guy stands in the middle and he has to box each guy for 30 seconds. It's like a workout thing. So everybody you're fighting is fresh, and you're just getting more and more tired as you fight. So we were doing that, but there was no body no head punches, only body punches. And so um, I'm, I'm, there's a kid in there who really hadn't fought much. He's getting a good workout. And I thought to myself, I'm going to fake for his head, but I can't hit him in the head. But when his gloves come up, I'm going to come up with a big uppercut to the ribs. Um, and I thought through it, and, it, and I saw it happening in my head, and I faked at his head. He went up. I come under, and I broke two of his ribs. I felt awful. Like I hit him with everything. Like I, it all came together perfect. I felt terrible. Um, anyway, this was not... Andre. That wasn't even supposed to be in the story. <laughs> but it was the same kind of thing. I timed Andre out. And I knew what he did, and he did the same thing every time. And so, um, and so I waited. I, I came up. I didn't do anything fancy. Um, he threw the, the funky jab that he stretched out to throw. I kind of slipped it and hit him on the chin and knocked him out cold. One punch. The whole fight was one punch. Everybody goes nuts. The whole place goes nuts. I suddenly turn into Rocky. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm suddenly I'm the best fighter on the planet, you know, and all of a sudden I'm the cocky. I'm like, what do you want, Andre? Well, you know, the thing that was driving me nuts that he was doing, now all of a sudden I'm doing it. And uh, Eric Christopher, um, one of the Christopher brothers, you could tell, and he was a super nice guy. You could tell he was like, we better put him in his place. He was like, I'll box you a little bit. And now I'm like, okay, well, you want some of this big right hand? Come on. And I mean, yeah, I look like a speed bag. He was just boop, 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 boop. I didn't see a single, I didn't see a single punch coming. And, you know, and he was real sweet about it. He was like, you got to keep your guard up. Boop. Oh, God. What's, how do I do? Boop. Oh, stop hitting me for a second. Like, he just wailed on me for until I, you know, got humbled again. But uh, I learned a major lesson, which we'll talk about later. Um, so. We're going to dive in. Let me start by saying that uh, this is absolutely my favorite passage in the book of Romans. Um, maybe the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible. To wrestle over and unpack with, with people in a small group setting. I've never preached on this, which is, which is interesting because I've spent hours and hours and hours chewing on this in smaller groups, um, which I think is the best way to do this passage. But, um, but we're going to do it. So this is my first time um, doing this from the pulpit. And honestly, I have no idea what to expect. Um, I told Esther they might fire me today. I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, but we're actually going to cover a lot of ground in the book of Romans. Um, but honestly, it, it shouldn't be a, a very long message, comparatively speaking, of course. Because um, the content of this chapter and a half that we're going to actually cover um, uh, and dig into isn't really that complicated to unpack. It's just really, really difficult to apply and actually live out. Um, but we're going to do a little bit of cultural history because there's a kind of a hot cultural debate um, that motivated and informed this morning's passage. Um, and we will also have to do some context review again because this chapter only works in light of the context of the rest of the book, um, which is not unique for the book of Romans. We've talked about that a lot. But before we dive in, 
sorry, before we dive in head first, I'm going to set the mood a little bit, okay? I'm going to read one verse just to set the mood and kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with here. This is the very first verse of chapter 14. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. That's a perfect picture of the church, right? That's what, that's what we do. Now, you ever read something in the Bible and you're like, I wonder how that would look. Like, I wonder what that would look like if we actually took that seriously. Which is usually followed shortly by, how did we get so far off from that? Don't argue with each other about right and wrong. That's what we do. Like, that's like 90% of what we do. The reason I say this is going to set the mood is because I hope you can see that we're kind of moving into uncharted territory here. This is not something we're all very familiar with. Because arguing over right and wrong is basically the majority of what the church does today. And though the concepts presented in chapter 14, the first half of chapter 15, are not new to a lot of us, I fear the heart of the passage is often missed. Because Paul opens this portion of the letter by saying, don't argue over what you think is right and wrong. And he wraps up this little argument with this. May God who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Those are the bookends of this passage. Don't argue of what you think is right and wrong, so that you can live in harmony, as is fitting to followers of Christ, so that you can all worship God and bring Him glory. That's the main point of what we're doing today. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. I think it's important to to set the mood with Paul's bookends like this, because I think we have to... Engage this study knowing that this is not a casual throwaway topic. Many people have resigned this passage for this is how you deal with the gray areas. Or or this is how you handle differences in music or worship style. I think it's important to recognize that we're confronting a blunt and blatant command to not argue over what we think is right and wrong. And we're talking about stuff that, that affects our ability to bring God glory. An end that I believe we were made for. So please, please know that in, in terms of the like behavioral part of this book, the imperative part, we've been talking about that indicative imperative style. This imperative part of the book of Romans. This passage is maybe the most important part of this book. And it's actually pretty easy to unpack because in between his bookends, Paul's pretty practical and plain spoken. So let's read the first part, and then we'll talk about what's happening here. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another person uh, with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day, do it to honor him. Those who eat uh, any kind of food, do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to him. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, you will all stand before this judgment seat of God. For the scripture said, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of you will give personal account to God. Okay, let's talk about what's happening here. Um, in first century Rome, the worship of the Roman gods was very commercial. 
it had gotten very kind of financial and fiscal. Um, not unlike worship in America, honestly. In fact, it was, it, it was in the Jewish time too. Jesus went in and, and flipped the money tables because even the Jewish temple had, had taken on kind of a profiteering mindset. It was no different in Rome. Um, in, in, in a major city in Rome and, and all the other major Roman cities, it was a common marketing technique for butchers to sell their meat outside of the temple of a particular patron god. And, and when they would sat, kill the animal, they would, they would offer it up, a couple of the cuts and things would go on the fire to that god, and they would sell it accordingly. And so if you were trying to appease um, Zeus or Hermes or Artemis or whoever, you would buy meat that had been offered up to that god. You would, you would invest in that god. And so, um, so most of the butchers hung outside the popular gods' temples um, because it was an easier sell. Um, the gods that were in, in favor um, at that time, they would do it. So it was, it was kind of a it was kind of a money thing. It was it was a it was a commercial thing. Um, but in Rome, there was basically no plate, no meat that you could buy um, that hadn't been offered up to a god somehow. It was um, every animal that was killed was was ultimately offered to a god somewhere, and the 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 salesman would kind of pump this idea, and they would make sure you knew um, which god was was honored with this meat. Um, so, so for a Roman pagan, eating meat what became part of your worship, became an act of worship. It was something you did um, mindfully. You knew where your meat came from, in other words. Um, so as soon as the Roman, these Romans become Christians, the simple act of eating meat suddenly took on new weight. Um, some, probably those who were pretty devout pagans, who took the the, the sacrificing of their meat very seriously, who, who actually thought about the God that their meat was, was offered to, those people had a very hard time continuing to do that now that they're Christians because this was a genuine part of their worship. And so it felt weird to continue to do it now that they're Christians. And so a lot of them quit, quit eating meat because there was no way to buy meat that hadn't been done, that, that hadn't gone through that process. Uh, and then others... Um, probably those who um, saw through the financial, you know, uh, commercial side of, of uh, using gods to market T-bones, um, they probably had no trouble transitioning over. And, and, and they were like, there's only one God. That's the chunk of, of, of stone that somebody carved out. Who cares if you kill the animal in front of that chunk of stone? It's meat. Like, because I believe there's only one God and there's, there's nothing divine about that temple, um, why wouldn't I eat the meat? Who cares what you kill it in front of? Um, and, and the thing is, both sides had a good argument. The one side who used to eat this meat as an act of worship, it, it, it was very important to them to go, I don't worship like that anymore. I don't do that anymore. And the other side, who probably didn't really see much worship in their, in their meat eating to begin with, were able to transition very, very easily. And, and that was the hot topic of the day. It was, it was actually a very big deal. In a place like Rome where you literally couldn't buy meat that hadn't been at least perfunctorily um, sacrificed to an idol, some Christians ate whatever they wanted and some had to become vegetarians. And, and they fought over it. And, and, which is exactly how Paul starts. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another person with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. That's how he starts his argument. Um, and just to make sure you don't think that this is kind of a moot point for us because we don't really do this with meat anymore, um, Paul kind of expands it. He then says, in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another, while others think every day is alike. And you should be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. So, so now we have meat offered up to idols and also holy days. They're also on the table. Um, and I think we still struggle with this a bit. Some folks see Sunday as different. Um, you, you dress nicer, you put your best foot forward, you recognize that we're gathering with the people of God to appro- approach the, the throne of the Almighty together. And that should, should not be taken lightly. So you do things differently. This day is, is special. If someone else feels like God is just as real and present in my truck on Tuesday morning as he is at church on Sunday, why would I treat Sunday special? God is always with me. I want to treat every day special. Not to mention there, there's still a, a remarkable number of C&E Christians in the world who rarely make it to church on any given Sunday but wouldn't consider missing Christmas and Easter. 
Those are special days. Those are holy days. You treat those days different. So, so I think we still struggle with this one some, with, with where do we stand on this. And later Paul sneaks in this. It's better to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. So now you, you've added to drinking wine to the list. And there's nothing historical to inform this one. Um, so I would imagine they struggle with alcohol pretty much the exact same way we do. You can't really come up with an actual biblical reason that it should be forgiven. But at the same time, everybody knows somebody who abuses alcohol. Everybody knows somebody who acts differently because they drink. And that doesn't make sense. And so it's something that, that almost comes with an assumption for some people. And they're like, why would I, why, why would I do something that might make me... Um, you know, impaired in some way and not be able to follow Jesus as fully. And so I'm assuming they had the exact same concerns that, that, that some people in the church today have. So we have meat, we have holy days, we have wine. And all this to say the actual behavior we're talking about here is not what's important. Plug in whatever right and wrong you wish. Paul's advice is to not argue over it. And I, and I, and I do have to admit that many don't see this chapter exactly the same way I do. So, so please feel free to disagree with me on a lot of this. Maybe most don't. <laughs> but all three of those, meat, holy days, wine, are, are gray areas. Some people believe those are gray areas. I argue they're not. These are things that were, these, I mean, these aren't things that were strictly forbidden in Scripture, a lot of people will say. And admittedly, many people have just developed convictions against them, um, which is understandable. But the Bible doesn't forbid them. So the chapter is, uh, to a lot of people, is how you handle stuff the Bible doesn't mention directly. Where the Bible does mention something directly, you obey that. That's not a gray area. There's no debate over that. But for the things that aren't mentioned directly, you use this passage. Except that's not the way it would have played out in Rome. See, Rome was functioning according to, to a letter that was sent out in Acts 15. In Acts 15, the church leaders were trying to figure out to do with this new Gentile church, all these new Gentile Christians, and how they were supposed to live. Some said they needed to become Jews. The whole story was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Why would you not enter the Jewish you know, community? So some said the Gentiles needed to become Jews. They needed to get circumcised, follow the Jewish law. Paul and many others thought that was crazy. The law didn't help the Jews get saved and get closer to God. So why would you go backwards? If you've accepted Jesus, why go backwards into the law? So all the church leaders, they didn't know what to do with this. And they're, they're confused. There's a lot of, of, of concern. And so the church leaders all gathered together in Jerusalem, which later became named as the first ecumenical council at Jerusalem. It's considered to be a, a, an official church council. And they debated to see to what would become of this Gentile church. And they decided that the Gentile church did not have to become Jewish. But this church council did give a few New Testament commandments. And these brand new Gentile churches all over the Roman Empire were, were given these. It was sent out to be circulated. And here's, what it, here's how it read. It said, this is a letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. We did not send them. So we decided, having come to a complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm that we have what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from, meat, from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of any strangled animal, from sexual immorality, for if you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Now, please remember, this is at a time when there's no New Testament yet. Like Paul is actively writing some of the earliest books in the New Testament. The four Gospels weren't written for another almost 20 years. There is no Bible. All they have is this letter. 
That, that in essence, and the Old Testament is their Bible. Paul's written some letters, and some of them bounced around a little bit, but there was no complete New Testament yet. For the church at this point, this letter from the leadership in Jerusalem was the closest thing they had to a New Testament. It basically amounted to an invitation to join the team and follow five little commands. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Except one of the, one of the five official New Testament commands was to abstain from meat offered up to idols. So the Romans, this passage could not have been a gray area. This is maybe as black and white as it gets. They have a written command from the apostles and elders, which we also have in Romans 15, and yet they didn't all obey it. Anybody feeling uncomfortable? (laughs) So I can't believe that in its original context, this chapter was intended to be, here's how you handle gray areas. Which is terrifying, to be honest. Because Paul is saying it's okay to eat meat offered up to idols when we have scripture in Acts 15 that says it's not, then where does that stop? Told you you were going to want to fire me. Well, before we unravel all of that, (laughs) which we are going to do, and how I believe we're supposed to actually apply Romans 14 and 15, let's draw a couple, let's draw out a couple kind of inferred realities that are present here. Um, First, on the spectrum of right and wrong, or you can call it grace and holiness, or you can call it convictions and liberties, but the spectrum that ultimately defines your understanding of right and wrong, this is how a Christian should live, wherever you are on that spectrum, there is someone further down the holiness line, and there is someone further down the, the liberal line. Wherever you stand, there's someone on both sides of you. And you are most naturally going to assume where you stand is the best place to stand. Anybody that way is clearly legalistic. They, they don't understand grace at all. And anyone that way clearly doesn't love Jesus and needs to come into the Lord talk. Really, if they had it right, they'd stand right here. And everybody on that side thinks that you're lawless and need to, need to come into Jesus talk. And everybody on that side thinks you're a legalist. Okay? No matter where you stand, you're going to assume your place should be pretty much the right place. Or, may, or maybe you, you can't even fully live up to your, your standards, but wherever you put your standards, you're going to believe that's the perfect spot. Any more strict, you're a legalist, and you need grace. Any more liberal, you're basically lawless, and you need Jesus. Or at least a little sniff of hell's fire and brimstone. I don't care where you are on the spectrum, you are... You are uh, actually in the same frame of mind as everybody else. Just, you're here, you've got legalists in your world, you've got lawless in your world. Somebody here has legalists in their world, they have lawless in their world. Somebody clear on the other side of you has legalists in their world, and they have lawless in their world. Everybody get that? Ultimately, nothing changes other than exactly where you happen to stand. Meanwhile, You'll show up with your black and white understanding of Scripture or whatever to defend your spot, like we all do. You'll cite chapter and verse. And when they argue, you'll assume they're making excuses and they need discipline and conviction. And you might even think, they may, they aren't even, how can they even be saved and believe that? So the first thing we want to catch here is that we all play both sides of this argument in this chapter on some topic. Like we'll all play, I don't want to know the guy that's at the end of the spectrum down there and I really don't want to know the guy that's at the end of the spectrum down there. Someone's got to be, I assume, but I don't want to know him. Like most of us are, are somewhere in here. So all of us are going to be the strict one at some times and the liberal ones at other times. So, so every single position in this chapter applies to all of us in different moments. Okay? So we both play both sides of this argument in this chapter. 
on one topic or another. We'll be the stronger or we'll be the weaker. doesn't matter. Which brings us to the second thing we want to notice. The stronger, weaker demarcations are backwards from what we might think they are. Let's look at a word-for-word translation of verse 2. It says, For one believer who eats all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So the one who lives the more strict lifestyle, you might say, the one who takes their holiness seriously and honestly takes the commands of the leadership in Rome seriously, Paul says they're the weaker brother. That feels a little backwards. Paul says it again in chapter 5. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, the the convictions, the, the standards of the weak, and not just please ourselves. I know it sounds weird and almost insulting, but Paul basically says those of us who are strong, who are, who are marked by basically having no scruples, have to bear with the scruples of those who do. The weak. Which is weird. We would generally reverse that today. And so say those who live the good Christian life, who don't drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance, you know, the, the things, they're the strong Christians. And the rest of us, just aspire to be more like them. Paul says that backwards. Now again, don't get offended or proud, whichever side you're on, of the terms weak and strong because every single one of us is both. Remember, we're on a spectrum. Like you might be the strong one in this argument, the weak one in the next argument. Like it's like a lot of people are like, who don't want to be the weak brother? That's not what we're saying. We're on a spectrum here. And that's what I learned when I knocked out Andre, by the way, that there's always somebody better. <laughs> like, you don't ever climb to the very top. Like, it doesn't matter who you knock out, there's someone waiting to knock you out. Like, and that's the same thing that applies here. So this is a spectrum, seemingly backwards from what we might think. And the third thing we need to catch here is how you take this passage will tell you if you've digested the rest of the book at all. I've titled this message The Main Point Part 3 because it is so dependent on, on this entire imperative portion of the book, especially both the sermons from chapter 13 and today's message. We, put all, we did one part 1, 2, and 3 because really they all have to go together. Because if we're tracking with the rest of the book, chapters 14 and 15 are the most natural transition in the world. If the gospel has truly worked on you the way Paul intended it to, this would be the most natural thing in the world. But if not, and please remember our mood setter at the beginning, it's because we really haven't digested the rest of the book. And that's when we can get really hung up on this passage. But the meat of the passage, (laughs) no pun intended, of what happens in this passage is that Paul tells us how to negotiate these moments of disagreement over what we think is right and wrong. And the advice is actually pretty simple on the surface. But as with many things, the real life application is where it gets fuzzy. So here's the basic advice. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Now, Paul does go on to say the stronger brother um, shouldn't do anything in the presence of the weaker brother that that might make the weaker brother stumble. Um, But the gist of the advice is when you look one way down the spectrum from where you are, don't judge those with more liberties than you. And when you look the other way down the spectrum, be mindful of their convictions and don't flaunt your liberties in such a way that you might offend their conscience. That's the basic advice. Pretty simple. And remember, both sides of that equation apply to all of us in one one situation or another. Don't judge those with fewer scruples and don't stumble or harm those with more. But that's the basic process. It's not complicated. Don't judge if someone's doing something you think is wrong. As much as possible, don't do something that you consider to be okay in the presence of someone who, who considers it to be wrong. 
Or maybe a better order would be, don't do something that, that you know might offend someone. And if things get so complicated that you mess up and accidentally do something that might offend someone, then it's their job not to judge you for it. So in other words, you fix what you can. And then if you get in a situation and something happens, then, then it's their job not to judge you for it. And this is one of the coolest tensions in the entire book. This is like my favorite tension in the book. Because there are two realities at play here, and they seem completely opposite, which is so cool. Here are the two things happening here. One, each person is responsible for themselves. Stay in your lane. And two, we are responsible for each other. It's not about you. And those are both present in this chapter at the same time. And Paul doesn't even hide from that at all. Let's unpack that. First, each person is responsible for themselves. Paul says this. Who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they'll stand and receive his approval later. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And later, yes, each one of us will give a personal account. So Paul's like, hey, that God can handle that person. They're going to stand before God. That's not your business. And yet, then he tells us, but you curb your behavior because you're responsible for other people. So I can't say this strongly enough. This is not a passage about how to figure out right and wrong. That's not what's happening here. And that's the bummer is we go to this and we try to figure out what qualifies as the type situation you can apply to Romans 14. Is it gray area? Is it black and white scripture? Is this? That's not what's happening here. Paul's not trying to help us find a way to sort out right from wrong. Every time I study this passage with people, most want to say this advice works great for gray areas like drinking or going to R-rated movies or cussing, but the stuff the Bible clearly says is sin is sin. That's non-negotiable. And to that, I would say we're missing the entire point of the passage. The passage is not about which items are open for debate and which ones aren't. This passage is about your role in the sin and conviction of another believer. Remember, maybe a better way of saying it, this passage is about whether or not you get to be the Holy Spirit. Because ultimately that's what most of us want. If you think this passage is only for gray areas and not clearly defined biblical sins, I'd say for your life that's absolutely true. You absolutely should call sin what the Bible calls sin. And you should shape your life around that. There is no gray area. The Bible says it's sin and, and then, then do it. I mean, don't do it. <laughs> Whatever. Shape your definitions of sin exactly off what the Bible says. There is no debate. Absolutely, that's true. And anything that the Holy Spirit just convicts you of, that's just as real. If it's in your heart and, and, you, and you just know you're not supposed to do that, you're not supposed to do that. That would be sin to do it. Paul makes that clear in this chapter. And still, it's not your job to do that for somebody else. That's the hard thing about this chapter. Is we think if we, if we allow this chapter to, to be what it, what it is, then all of a sudden our, our grasp of black and white scripture weakens. No, that's not what it's saying. For your life, for what you, you define in your life as sin, the scripture is the, is the measuring stick. It is the plumb bob. It is what holiness is. What this is saying is what do you do if somebody else is doing something that doesn't fit what you see? And that's where it gets hard. Because Paul says that's not your job. That's not your job. Your job is to go to the scripture, obey it. It's not your job to make other people do it. Paul says plainly, you, uh, who are you to judge someone else? They stand before God, and you are not God. We read this morning's, or we read this passage, we read the passage last week, but it's essential in this morning's passage. This is one of the key features of the prophesied new covenant. The covenant that Jesus named and called at the Last Supper. 
Jeremiah said, this is what the new covenant is going to look like. Jesus took the wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Here's what Jeremiah said it was going to be like. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Uh, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This is one of the key features of the new covenant. And it's that the Holy Spirit will be the Holy Spirit. I have a personal theory. I haven't put a lot of time into this. That legalistic Christians have trouble believing in the the active, actual, working power of the Holy Spirit. I haven't fully researched it, but it, it seems like a lot of the denominations and churches and even individuals who are the most uncomfortable with the idea of the Holy Spirit's power working actively in the life of believers to do miraculous things or, 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 or heal or even cause people to speak in tongues, the people who have the biggest problem with that tend to be the most legalistic. And I, and I think there's something in, in the theology of the Holy Spirit there that, that we trip over. It's like when they stop believing that the Holy Spirit can do these miraculous things, they also stop believing that the Holy Spirit can actually convict someone of sin and empower them to do better. Like I say, just a theory. But again, this passage is not about sorting out right from wrong. It's about Paul unpacking and justifying one simple statement. Don't argue with them about what you think is right and wrong. Paul's explaining why it's okay to obey this command. And the reason is, it's not your job. It's not your job. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. So stay in your lane. Mind your own business. You worry about what the Bible says and what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart and leave other people alone. But, and here's where the beautiful tension comes in. You are responsible for the people around you. That's the second part. One of the things that's inferred in this passage is fairly close relationship. If you go to a restaurant and, and you'd normally order wine with your meal, let's say, but you're nervous because there might be some Christian in the room somewhere who might take offense to it and you don't want to stumble that person, so you pass on the wine. I admire the commitment. But I would wonder why you don't worry about if an Amish person comes in and you're wearing color. Or, or if, if maybe a Pentecostal holiness person comes in and you're in jeans or slacks and they're in a dress. Like, why doesn't that bug you? If, in other words, there's pretty much n- no way to prepare for every possible conscience we may offend at every time. But, but with the people we have relationship with, either fellow church members, friends, even family, any, anywhere where there's an opportunity to know and understand someone else's convictions, then we are responsible for those convictions. And this is the beautiful tension. Mind your own business, but also be willing to completely change your behavior for the good of someone else. Each of us will individually stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but also you are your brother's keeper. And Paul spends a a long time driving home our responsibility. He puts it here first. If if, If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Later he says, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything if it might cause another believer to stumble. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. And all of this is utterly dependent 
on the passage we read last week. Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up with one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it sounds so warm and fuzzy. Belongs on a pretty motivational poster on the wall. Until Paul actually unpacks it. And says, if it's, if it's, if it's good for uh, your church friends for you to be a vegetarian, then that's what you do. That's a tall order. Because that's what love looks like with shoes on. Love is hard. Love is when you say, I cannot come up with a single reason why this would be wrong, but you are so much more important to me than this thing. Nowhere in my heart can I find a reason why I shouldn't be able to eat this, drink this, do this. I, I, really, I can't even dream up how this could offend God. But you are so much more important to me than this. I'll drop it in a second if it's good for you. That's what love looks like with shoes on. And it only works in the context of this entire book, which I think Paul hits on in the very last verse of the passage. He says, therefore... Accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Because it's real easy to look down the spectrum and go, you know, those people are a mess. And forget that so are you. And Jesus loved you right there in your mess. And how easy it is to know that you're loved by Jesus, no matter how messy you are, and then go, yeah, but that guy, he's blech. I don't know why we do it, but, but Paul is saying, think about the way Jesus accepted you. Think about what he gave up, stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, suffered for you. You're going to fight over a steak. I have the right to eat my steak. Paul's like, are you even catching what we just talked about for 14 chapters? Only when you've stood at the beginning of this book and found yourself the vilest of sinners. Only when you've watched God not only save you when there was nothing you could do to save yourself, but also set you completely at peace with himself. Only when you've struggled with your sin wanting with everything in you to stop sinning in light of what amazing things God's done for you, only to realize you cannot escape the sin that's in your heart. Because that's what Paul does in chapter 7. And only when you stood in chapter 8 and realized that despite your complete unworthiness and, your, your, and you being completely incapable of overcoming sin, even after getting saved, despite all that, there's no condemnation and despite all that, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And only when you've contemplated God's sovereignty in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11 and said with Paul, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible are his ways beyond finding out. And only when you've stood with Paul and agreed that in light of such grace, such love, such beauty, the only thing that's even reasonable is to lay yourself down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Only then are we even capable of saying, it totally makes sense that I would change my behavior for the good of someone else. It totally makes sense that I would accept them even when they seem to me to be vile because I was accepted when I was vile. Only then does it make sense for, for me to lay down anything for the good of someone else. Because Jesus laid down everything for my good. Because if it doesn't come as a response of being loved that much, then this chapter just becomes another law, another standard, another rule we have to follow. And that's not where this should come from. 
This comes at the end of the book because it's important that all of that other stuff come first. This passage is about love. And it's about faith that the Holy Spirit can actually be the Holy Spirit. And that's the hard part. You don't need to be the Holy Spirit. This this passage is ultimately about unity and it's about having the courage to truly be the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat or drink, but living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. So how do we respond to this? Now, one of the reasons I stress the heart of this passage more than the specific details is because there are a million scenarios where the simplicity of this chapter gets really complicated. And I own that. What, about, what do you do with raising kids? Obviously, you have to teach your kids right from wrong. This is going to be a really tough chapter if, if, when, when you're teaching your kids right from wrong. You don't just turn them over to the Holy Spirit at age four and go, well, the Holy Spirit will convict them. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Take off your belt and convict them. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, by the way. I don't write that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. What about discipleship? What about when someone you love is ruining their lives and you feel like you are supposed to say something to them? I'm not even going to go into what this says about politics and living in a democracy. That's a, that's a whole other ball of wax. But the heart of this passage is love, which we dug into last week, and faith. Faith in the Holy Spirit. Faith in the New Covenant that God writes his words on the inside and we don't have to project them from the outside. And I'll be honest, this is tough. It's so much easier to control someone's behavior and get them to do exactly what you want. That's what we want. It's so much less messy. It's so much less messy if you can go, this is the way you're supposed to act and just expect them to act that way. Oh, that's so much cleaner giving someone the grace to be exactly where they are, authentically themselves, and trust the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. And even if the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be working in the areas you'd like to see Him work in, or as fast as you'd like to see Him work, actually trusting that the Holy Spirit's doing His job, that's hard. Oh, man. It's brutal. So much easier to control. So much easier to go, Holy Spirit, I got this. Stop it. It's about embracing somebody right where they are. Not where you expect them to be. And it's hard. It's messy. It'll stretch you. And it'll reveal this whole tangled up mess in your own heart. But that's what Paul calls us to do. He says, don't fight over this stuff. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. This is the new covenant where God goes on the inside and does the work on the inside. I know a lot of you have heard me rail on and on and on about church unity. I I believe the church is supposed to be, and I don't believe that means we wash out and all believe this is, you know, the same exact. No, we're supposed to hold tight to our convictions and and study to, to, to deepen them. And we're supposed to, you know, hold on and and be who God has called us to be. And we're supposed to worship together in the midst of that. We don't just find people that agree with us 100% and call that church. We sit in this mess and tension of disagreeing with each other and not seeing things the same way and believing that Paul knows what he's talking about in this passage. That Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says that people are going to know you're my disciples because you love each other. That doesn't mean you find people, a bunch of people that, that's, that you find it super, super easy to love. And that's how people are going to know you're Jesus' disciples. No, it means you sit with people who, who frustrate you sometimes, people who disagree with you, people who don't believe what you believe, and you love them, and you don't fight over silly things. 
And the world sees that and they're like, I mean, look at what's happening in our world. It's being torn to shreds because we can't agree on it. We can't even talk to somebody we disagree with. That's absurd. And the church could be so different right now. The church could be a, a, an actual light. I have no idea where I'm at, Brett. Sorry. So it doesn't believe we don't have standards for our corporate gatherings. Of course, we still have to have ways. It doesn't mean there's not a proper way to do things when we gather and worship together. It doesn't mean we don't discipline our kids, raise them up in the way they should go. But it does mean that we learn to not only invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and into our church, but we actually allow ourselves to become utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit's presence every single day. Even the Holy Spirit's presence and ability to work on somebody else. So as we gather around the table and we sing one last song, kind of welcoming the Holy Spirit into our midst this morning, the way that I'd love to respond to this message, once again, ask the gospel to work on you. The true gospel of Jesus Christ, that he did everything for you. That always has to be the starting place. But two, anywhere that you are holding on to someone else's behavior, anywhere you are deeply irritated that someone doesn't believe what you do, anywhere you're carrying the weight of desperately wanting someone to do things your way, anywhere you are wanting really, really badly to be the Holy Spirit, I invite you to release that this morning. Maybe even as we sing, just open your hands and let some tension out. As we sing and and just imagine all of that holding on so tight just being released. Give that weight to the Holy Spirit and recognize that it's not yours to carry. Leave here lighter this morning as you trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit promised to do.